Hola, mi gente. To celebrate Women's History Month, I wanted to share some stories of women who are truly breaking barriers. Let's be honest, because I've had the honor to interview so many amazing people. This was very, very hard. But I wanted to throw back to some early episodes. And we're going to start with my friend Arzo Youssef. Arzo is the founder and CEO of Sexy Boss Babe a social impact company that focuses on women empowerment and the link between foster youth and human trafficking. It is such an important conversation, and I hope that you are all able to take something so very important away. So without further delay, here you go. Hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Cheese Smith podcast, a podcast created to share the stories of everyday people doing remarkable things in communities of color all while sipping on a glass of wine. In this episode, I get the chance to speak with my friend Arzo Youssef. Arzo is a social impact entrepreneur and the founder and CEO of Sexy Boss Babe, a woman empowerment and indie beauty brand which uses its platform to encourage women empowerment and raise awareness on the link between foster youth and sex trafficking. I want to make sure that I let you all know that this podcast can be triggering. We speak on topics such as sexual assault and human trafficking young girls as young as eight years old. This is also a very informative podcast, and I encourage you to listen all the way through. So grab your glass of wine and join us for the chisme. To you know, I've been wanting you on the podcast literally since before I even met you. <laughs> because I think, first of all, you just have such a wonderful personality. You just have such light that comes out of you. And when I met you, I was like, oh my gosh, I just want to give her a hug. And right now we can't even touch and we can't even do this in person. But so sweet. I want to hug you too. And you know, I just I've appreciated you since before we met as well. And so many amazing women that I keep meeting are just through social media, and that's how you and I connected. And so I love what you're doing, and it's just such a like a privilege for me um, that you picked me. To Aww, thank you. I mean, well, like I said, you have this light that I absolutely am drawn to. But also, what we're going to really talk about today is something so unbelievably important. Um, and you have a really wonderful story that goes along with that. So before we get to the chisme, we have to get to the wine. And today I am drinking a Javier San Pedro Grandes. So this is a Tempranillo Rioja. It's from Spain. And I did get this. Of course, I got it from Trader Joe's because that seems to be where I get all of my wine. Great they do. And I got it for $7.99 at Trader Joe's. Great prices and like great wines. Girl, I can find, I tell you, I could go to the grocery store and there'll be a wine for $20 and I can find it for half the price at Trader Joe's. No that's, way. Yeah. That's why I end up going to Trader Joe's. I can save anywhere from 4 to $10 on a bottle of wine by going to Trader Joe's. That's so cool. I'm such a, I love deals. Like I love getting a discount on stuff. <laughs> Me too. And that's why I like, if somebody, you know, wants to sponsor and send wine, that's cool. I'm all good because I'm not somebody who determines my taste of wine by price point. I just determine if I like it or not, but I'm not going to spend $70, $80 on a bottle of wine because I'm going to drink it so quickly. I, to me, I want to like look at it and be, you know, I might hoard, I might hoard it and not drink it. You know, I I mentioned you to my friend Michonne, Michonne Williams, and um, she actually just joined our Facebook group for Sexy Ross Babe. Um, she has, she's a part of this wine company, and so whenever I have big events and stuff, I always have her come and and, and do like a wine table. But um, talk to her; I'll connect you guys, and she could be a cool person and maybe sponsor some wine for you and. Uh, because it would give her some exposure too. And she's got great wines. Yeah, that would be awesome. So you're not drinking wine today. I'm going solo today. Oh, I know. I still have to work later. <laughs> All right. Well, let me no, taste this fine. wine and let me tell you. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is really good. I've been, 
I must say, I've been choosing some really good wines lately because I tend to look at the, I do look at the label to see like what the flavors are. Yeah. And this one says it's uh, a super fresh tempranillo with intense cassis and cherry aromas, full flavored and elegant. It will be, and I liked, I like some light ones and I like some full ones. So I knew I wanted to get one of each. So when I saw that, I got it and it's really good. It does have a little bit of a a peppery taste, but not, but it's not overpowering and it's really good. I've been, I'm really proud of myself because like I said, I don't just pick them. I actually look and I, especially with white wines, I try and find things that are more citrusy and dry and I'm not ever, I haven't been too really disappointed with anything so far. So. Well, I'm kind of jealous right now. Now I kind of want some wine. <laughs> I'm jealous that I'm not there to have it with you because originally we were supposed to be together, right? Uh, yes. I would have gotten to enjoy that delicious sounding wine too. I know. Do Am I making it sound really good? <laughs> I literally am just kind of like thinking, I'm like, what do I have in my cabinet right now? <laughs> well, you could grab it anytime you want. So just and let you know, me know. I actually have it. I might be in the space where I'm like, I kind of deserve it because this whole quarantine, I haven't had any other than my birthday night. You haven't had any? Oh my gosh, girl, you need someone. I don't know how you're doing it. That's how I'm surviving. I know. Everyone's surviving. What's wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> you getting things done. Not that we're not getting things done, but you're like, you're doing next level stuff, I guess. Like maybe, but this is part of what I do. So no, I know I like it. I like that you do that. And I think I need to loosen up a little bit too. I think I, I tend to some, not uptight, but like, you know, I have my rules, you know, it's like, okay, well you can only do it on a Friday and only if you get all your work done, like whatever. It's just oh my gosh. Well then let's go right into the cheese, man. Whenever you want to get wine, just get some wine and that's cool. I might just have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so your full name is Arzo Yusuf. Yes, I want to pronounce it correctly. So, and you were actually born in Afghanistan. I was. So how old were you when you came to the U.S. and what prompted your parents to move from that area to the U.S. at the time that they did? Yeah, thank you. So, so I was, yeah, I was born in Kabul, Afghanistan, and I'm going to honestly tell you guys my age. (laughs) So I was born in 1980 and I just had my 40th birthday. Um, And and you look fabulous. You're so sweet. Thank you. (laughs) Always makes a woman feel good when you say that. (laughs) Um, I was uh, two months old and um, during the eighties, like 79, 80 is, it was like the, like the pinnacle point of the uh, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan from the Soviet Union. So at the time, I don't know if you guys remember, but there was like a cold war with the United States and, and, and USSR. And so it was during that time. And, uh, it was, it was during that time, and uh, most of our family held positions in parliament, and I had a great uncle who was the prime minister, um, and like in the 60s and 70s, uh, or in the 60s, he he would come to America, and he would go to the White House and sit with Lyndon B. Johnson and, and AFK and you know, things like that, and he was trying to democratize the country, and unfortunately, when the coup happened, and I think it was 79, the Soviets overthrew the government, and so at that point, they were killing people. Uh, at, at some point, the, the prime minister was assassinated. Uh, we were all in danger of, of, of being killed. So we all, in little small groups, tried to make our escape. So, you know, I always tell the story, uh, just because it's even shocking to me. I don't remember it, but it's what my parents tell me. Um, we, we left in a group of my mom and dad, my aunt and uncle, and I was the two-month-old baby. And my parents, they sat on mules and they uh, carried me. And I always tell the story that I was in a basket. But when I was talking to my mom the other day, she said, you weren't in a basket. We had you in a cloth. So you were in a cloth and we were holding each side of the cloth while we were on these mules. Oh my gosh, girl. Yeah. That's like, it literally sounds like biblical times. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what it sounds like. It's kind of crazy. And they literally made their escape and their bombs exploding and everything like that. And if we stayed, we probably would have been killed. So we came to, we went to Pakistan immediately for a couple of months, then to Germany. They were taking in uh, refugees. And then we were in Germany for two years and then came to America in 1982 as political asylum refugees. And we literally started from scratch with nothing. Anything that we had, we ha- we left it behind, you know, any land, any money or anything. So when we came to America, like we were on welfare, we were on food stamps. Like my, you know, I always tell people that my, uh, my mom would take us to Salvation Army to buy clothes. She tells a story that we were so poor that she was having guests over and in our culture, 
being generous and giving is it's it's just part of our culture. And so even if you have nothing, whatever you do have, you give it to your guests. And she said we had we were so poor. We had this little like baby Cornish game hen and we had like a family of seven coming over for dinner and I had no idea how I was going to feed like 10 people with these, with this little chicken. So that's that was kind of our start in America. Wow, oh my gosh, that's so crazy. I mean, it's just so it's almost in a different way reminiscent of you know, what is happening now, people trying to flee and trying to, I'm sure that gives you a very particular view of that. And it kind of just shows where your heart has been and why your heart isn't, you know, is where it is. Did your parents, when you did move here, did they keep those traditional Afghan values? And how did that meld or coincide with what you were learning by growing up in the U.S.? Yeah, sure. So the answer is yes. And we have a very strong culture and there's, there's more, I think, um, there's, there's more attention on like the, like the Latina communities and like Italians and like things like that. So people see that more, but our culture is very similar. Actually, there's, there's a lot of family traditions. There's a lot of being together with the family, taking care of your elders, interacting with each other, big weddings, big events, you know, things like that. So in that regards, it's very similar to a lot of the classic, you know, romantic type of, uh, uh, cultures. Uh, and, uh, so yes, being Afghan was a huge part of our identity. It's a very strong tradition. So to veer away from it, it takes a lot. Um, a lot of families still would rather operate from their very traditional place. It tends to cause some issues amongst the young people because then they kind of have dual identities and they don't know how to be American and then they're kind of stuck. So in that regards, comparing to other Afghan families, I feel lucky because our parents, they were more open-minded and they weren't just like, well, you're Afghan and you're not allowed to do this. It was like, okay, well, we're in America now. So let's all adapt. And so, um, you know, we, we were allowed to go to football games and parties and stuff like that. And, you know, in college, like, you know, we had boyfriends and which is not normal, you know, <laughs> in, in, in our part of the world, it's like you say we're going to get married and then you get married. So, um, you know, so we, you know, we had a pretty American lifestyle in that regard. So we were allowed to. Well, and then I guess that kind of answers the next question, but I'll ask it anyways, like, like your school experience, did you feel that it was, did you ever feel excluded because of your culture or were you able to kind of seamlessly, or, or did you grow up with other Afghan families that you, and kids that you went to school with, or was it really separate? You were in, did you grow up in LA? Is that where you grew up? I actually grew up in San Diego. Oh, you did grow up in, because I know your mom lives here, so I wasn't sure. Mm-hmm. So um, growing up, uh, I went to preschool here in an American preschool uh, kindergarten, elementary school, all that. So up until I, I would say second grade, um, I didn't feel different at all. I, I went to Lemon Avenue. I don't know if you know where that is, but it's near Spring Valley. And it's a, it was a very, you know, it's one, it's a lower income community and it's a diverse community. So we had, you know, Hispanic kids, we had white kids, we had, you know, black kids in the school. So I didn't feel different. Um, I never felt that sense. In third grade, um, we had moved and we moved to a different part of town. And in that school, everyone was white. And so I was the only one that was like something different than white. And I was the only kid in class. There's no black kids, there's no Mexican kids. Um, so I had like dark hair and I started puberty really young. So I started to get like boobs and then my hair, my face got weird. So, and then my name is Arza when everyone else is Jennifer and Kathy. And so I became very introverted during those years because I felt really different. And it wasn't necessarily that people made me feel different. I just was the new girl in school. I looked different. And I think I was just really shy. And because of that, I think other kids, it was hard for other kids to kind of step up and say, hey, let's be friends. So I was very alone, actually, through through those years. I don't have a lot of friends in school. I can't even imagine you being introverted because I don't even see you like that, right? I see you as this is a very vivacious full of life person. So coming, I know you said that there were still things that were still very traditional in your family. What was the, I know every culture is a little bit different, but can be very similar in regards to what's the word I want to use in regards to the attitude men have as being like the head of household. What was the relationship between your mom and dad within that? Was that a change dynamic? Was it pretty equal? Was it very much like your, your dad was the head and, and your mom just followed. How kind of was that? So, you no, know, not very traditional inside of our household. And I think that was more um, personality based rather than cultural. So 
my, my parents got divorced when I was 10 and they had a very bad marriage. Um, my dad was an alcoholic, so there was a lot of fighting in our house. And so, uh, you know, my mom worked. They both equally contributed just because being immigrants and coming to a new country, you know, when you're just building yourself up from scratch, you need as much income and, you know, resources as, as, as you can bring. So they both worked. And my parents did get divorced. We might have been the first Afghan family to like go through that in America. And that was a very awkward and scary time for me, uncomfortable. And then um, my mom was a single mom. So she also played a role that was not traditional in our culture, being a, an Afghan woman who lives alone, raising kids and works, makes her own money. So, you know, there's a lot of things with that, but just at that basic level, she kind of, to me, has always represented the American dream, coming to a country with nothing, excuse me, you know, building yourself and saving money. And, you know, later on, she, you know, bought a house. And so she did everything you're supposed to do, you know, that fits that American dream ideology. I would imagine that put a very, that put like a stamp or, or an ideal type of thing in your head very young, not in regards to the divorce, but as far as your mom being a really strong woman and independent woman and doing these things on her own. Did you at that point discover your own voice? Were you somebody who, I know you said at, when you hit third grade, you became more introverted just in regards to school, but just as a person as a whole. Sometimes you're different at school than you are at home. Were you somebody who always had a voice or did you start finding your voice after that point when your parents divorced? So it was, it was a little bit of a process. I think I was really shy for a long time. And then with the parents' divorce, not knowing how to deal and process those emotions. And in our culture, you also don't talk about your feelings. So a lot of the emotions were kind of uh, kept to myself and repressed, which added to the kind of uh, keeping, you know, you know, a little bit of self-isolation with, with regard to that stuff. And I was very shy for a long time. And it wasn't until much later, uh, probably, um, you know, middle of high school where I started to really take classes or take jobs that put me out in the public eye. And I had to talk to people and that was uncomfortable for me. I didn't like to, you know, for people to look at me, I still feel uncomfortable, you know, at the court, to be honest with you, I have to push myself every time. So just know every time I do a video or I get up and talk in front of a group, I'm actually really nervous deep down. And so I, I have to do all these things to, you know, keep myself calm and you know, work and just focus on the audience and things like that to overcome it. So, um, so it, you know, it takes time. And as far as finding your voice, life experiences is what has helped me. My mom being a single parent, she relied on me a lot for um, her emotional support, which, you know, you get older and you learn about all these things and it wasn't the right thing to do as a parent. You got to you know, create more of a safe environment for your kid. But, you know, she was doing the best that she could. And so because of that, I always kind of had this nurturing and protected or or being protective of people around me. So that's, I think, where that ended up developing for me. So at what point did you feel like you, because obviously you've developed this voice over time, you have a very specific point of view, you have like all of these things that you're doing with Sexy Boss Babe, which I can't wait to talk about. So I think it's so awesome. Um, was there a particular moment where you felt like, okay, I really need to start capturing my voice. I really need to start refining it or, or say, or speaking up for myself. Was there a particular moment that that happened or was it just something that eventually continued to grow until you're like, oh wait, this is who I am. This is my voice. Kind of a little bit of both, to be honest with you. You know, I always knew that there is something that I want to share with people um, and, you know, bring attention to marginalized communities and things like that. And part of that is being a good speaker, being able to voice yourself and, you know, speak with confidence and things like that. So I just put my, and I didn't know what that was going to ultimately look like. I had no idea, but I knew that that part was important. So I did put myself in environments to practice whether it was taking certain roles at jobs that would, you know, maybe I was uncomfortable in that role, but I knew that role would teach me a skill that I would need for later. Um, So in in that regards, or even with public speaking, like I said, I get really nervous. I started taking Toastmasters um, like over 10 years ago. And so you basically sit in a group of, you know, people, sometimes it's 20 or 10 or 30, and then you go through this booklet of projects and then you get up in front of the group and you do a speech and it's uncomfortable and it's scary if you're not someone that um, likes to be in the public eye. Right. But I just did that over the years because I wanted to just practice or when that time came when I did something that I would be able to be more comfortable and speak and things like that. 
wine break. Time to refill that glass and come back for more wine and cheese me. Hola, mi gente. I am so excited to share that the Wine and Cheese My Podcast is going on tour. And our first stop will be on April 29th in Los Angeles. There will be wine provided by Latine owned wine brands, a cheese and charcuterie grazing table, a special performance by Heidi Rojas, and a live podcast recording discussing diversity in media and entertainment. We will also be making stops in Dallas, Texas in June, New York City in September, and bring it back home to San Diego in December. So make sure to go to thewineandcheesemypodcast.com for more information on dates as each city gets closer and to buy your ticket today. What was your first experience Because there's kind of two things that you do. Obviously, you're you do a lot of stuff with human trafficking, which I definitely want to touch in. And you also do a lot of stuff with women empowerment. First, let's talk about like the women empowerment side, because I remember a specific story that you told in regards to looking for an investor for Sexy Boss Babe. And had you had uh, go if you wouldn't mind like sharing a little bit of that story and had you had other experiences similar to that, because I would imagine it's really hard, I think, for for women to be in a position where you are asking somebody to believe in you, but then they're also coming at you with wanting more than just than just to believe in you. They're they're expecting something back. Had that happened to you previously beyond that? And <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> and how has that happened since? Yeah. So <clears throat> it's definitely happened over, over the years. Um, uh, you know, it's just, it's just the unfortunate part about life. It's just a life reality. And I wish I could say that, you know, it'll change and, you know, maybe it will change at some point, you know, in the future in different generations, but unfortunately it's, it's the nature of men and women and at, at, a, at a very basic biological purpose, men are there to procreate whether we want to, you know, you know, believe that or not, they will always have their instincts and their urges. And, um, so as a woman, you have those challenges now because you, if you are a business person and you want to ex- excel and expand and scale and do other things, you have to play in that next level. And that next level is majority of men. So you have to conduct yourself a certain way. And it sucks because I know that there's a lot of this, you know, you can wear whatever you want and, you know, be a woman and it's okay. Sure. But in certain settings and certain scenarios, you just, you have to be a certain way. And even if you are, people still come at you. I had a, uh, another story of a time that I was working at this company and I had, um, reached out to an old boss of mine as a, as a potential client. It's a, a meeting, like a lunch meeting schedule. And I was wearing, you know, wearing a suit completely covered. And, um, I was on my way to go meet him at this restaurant and he tells me, Oh, why don't you come over? I'm going to make us lunch. You know, restaurants are so impersonal. I've known him for years. So I wouldn't think anything of it. Somebody I trusted, you know, I go to his house. He makes lunch for us, this beautiful condo overlooking like the Marina, excuse me. And, um, halfway through the lunch, I'm like, I remember just looking out the, over the, the, the balcony to the, to the, um, the water. And he just lunges over and kisses me. And I pulled back and I, I didn't know what to do. And I was a lot younger then too. And I didn't know what to do. And I just was like, what are you doing? And he apologized. And so, you know, again, I was like, okay, how do I handle this? Do I leave? Do I, you know, I felt so uncomfortable. I was, I don't even know. I think I was like 23, 24 years old at the time. And, uh, so I, I decided I was going to let it go and just pretend like it didn't happen. But I started cleaning up. He excused himself to go to the bedroom. He comes out wearing nothing but a robe, like, like Hugh Hefner. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. I just, you just, I, my mouth literally dropped when you said that. <laughs> what the heck? Yeah. And I just oh, looked at him and he like ran after me and, and put his arms on, trying to grab me. And I was literally like, everything was flashing before my eyes. I was picking him off and I was like, I'm like, stop, what are you doing? What are you doing? So I pushed him away and I just ran to the door. I grabbed my bag. I opened the door. I didn't say anything. And I just started running down the hall, took the elevator. No, I, I think I took the stairs and I just ran down and I sat in my car and I cried for like three hours. So yes, it happened. <laughs> oh my gosh. That is, 
Oh my gosh, that is that could that's a very traumatic experience. I mean, to have somebody, especially somebody you trust, somebody you've known for a long time. I mean, that's truly a violation. Like at some, how people can just think that they can do that. And I'm so glad that you were able to like remove yourself from that situation because who knows, had you not, who knows what, what would have happened. Yeah. And I think a lot of women in those situations, especially when you're young and you don't have the the hindsight or the foresight and your voice, because I think when you're young, especially you, you still don't have your voice. It takes a while in certain life experiences to really, truly get there, um, to be able to truly stand up for yourself. But, um, uh, I, I think, you know, we've heard so much about the Me Too movement and stuff like that. And so many women that, you know, were with high, uh, Hollywood directors and producers and made passes. And then they just went with, and so people are like, well, he didn't really rape you because you didn't say no. But what people don't understand is it's not that easy. There's a, psycho- there's a psychology behind it. And when you have a significantly older man with a lot more life experience, with a 21-year-old girl or a 22-year-old girl who doesn't, she's still not fully developed mentally and emotionally. Yeah. So it, there, there's a huge manipulation aspect to it, a huge dominance aspect to it. And again, going back to the talk that I did um, at the Women's Museum where, where you were there, and we talked about the generational oppression of women and how women over uh, decades and over time have been conditioned to be quiet, to be subservient, and accept what happens to you. So... Excuse me. It's going to be very hard to, to to break those norms, and I think it's starting to happen. It's just going to take us time to really get to where we, as women, want to be. So I feel like what like women empowerment and the stuff that you're doing with human trafficking are almost hand in hand, right? They're like each a piece of a puzzle in order to kind of create this bigger solution. When was the first time, or how did you actually learn about human trafficking, and what was your first initial response when you heard about that? Sure. So I think for all of us, kind of the same thing. I think I was in the same space where we think about human trafficking or sex trafficking. and We always jump to thinking of a third world country or Thailand or something. And I think that's always what I thought too. And it wasn't until I started doing work with uh, Angel's Nest, a nonprofit helping former foster youth, that I started to learn about the foster care system for the first time. And then through just those stories, through meeting the different kids, through talking to experts about what are the best resources for this demographic for a nonprofit, it was just over the years of learning and talking to other experts that are in the space that I started to learn more about sex trafficking in America. And that in America, it's, it's, it's a huge thing, just like it is in other parts of the world, that foster youth are the ones that are targeted the most because they're so vulnerable. And so that was really shocking to me. So once my term at Angel's Nest was done, I was, I was president of the board for four years. And then once I exited um, and thinking about what's my next, you know, doctor in life, you know, and now that I know all, all this information that I know, where's my passion? What do I want to do? And so I took those pieces of information and decided to, to end up, you know, I ended up creating Sexy Boss Babe and, you know, try to incorporate those different elements. So tell us about the ways, because I know it's, it's shifted, right, in regards to who they've targeted, but now it's very much foster youth, both men, or both boys and girls. What are some of the ways that predators seek their prey? Because that's really what they are, human tracker predators, and they're looking for prey. And who are, like, within those groups, who are the most, most vulnerable within those foster groups? So um, I, I don't know if you followed the Jeffrey Epstein case at all, but it was in the news last year a lot, I think more in the beginning of the year, but um, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, you know, a very wealthy person and knew a lot of other wealthy people, they had a sex trafficking ring. And it, there's an article, if you look up his name, Jeffrey Epstein, USA Today, foster youth, just type in those words in Google, the article will come up. And um, he talks about, we specifically targeted foster youth. And girls from single-family homes, because those are the most vulnerable populations. Uh, those are the kids that don't have um, as much resources, so they need money. They come from families that are living in, in, in poverty, uh, low-income communities, um, so you don't have everything that you want. Um, aside from that, foster kids are with away from their biological parents because their parents are either in jail or on drugs or have mental health issues or whatever it is, so you're with an, a, a strange family, a foster family. In best case scenarios, you have a great foster uh, 
family that takes care of you. In the worst case, which is more common, uh, these these foster families uh, take on foster kids because the government gives you a, a stipend to help pay for their resources. And a lot of families use that as a way, as a source of income because they're in poverty themselves. And um, so it becomes an income source and they're fostering a lot of kids. And so they don't really necessarily care about them and giving them the love, care, and attention that any child needs, any human needs. So now here comes traffickers. They know uh, through targeting and through grooming um, how to target kids in foster care. They know where the group homes are, so they follow them. They you know figure out who who is who. They know this better than the general public knows how this works. So we're all asleep. You know, we're all sitting here asleep on this, and the bad guys are, are know what to do and know what to look for. And they uh, uh, go through something, especially with the girls, called cut picking, where a lot of times they will um, just give them love, care, affection. You're beautiful. You know, something that they're them. seeking that they're lacking. Exactly, all that stuff that they're lacking. Low self-esteem. You know, that's what they're going through. And it's like, let's get your nails done. Let's get your hair done. And that's how they end up luring them in. And that's the person that's giving them love. So now all of a sudden it's like, hey, you know, you're going to sleep with this guy for money. They're going to do it. They're going to do anything that this trafficker tells them to do. Tell me, I know you, you know, obviously you've started Sexy Boss Babes once you, once you left the organization that you were at. How did that really, how did you end up starting that and tell people, because really I've shown, I've shown pictures on my Instagram in regards to these fabulous press on nails, because I'm not somebody who wears nails on my, like I'll get my toes done, but I don't necessarily get my nails done, but now I have something. So kind of explain how it truly came to be, like why you decided on doing these press on nails, how it works and how you're using that to help fight human trafficking. So um, thanks for being a fan of Sexy Boss Save Nails. And they look really fabulous on you. I've seen your pictures. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they're a lot of fun. Um, so it's, it's kind of like like two parts. Like one part is just the product and a beauty product is a woman. Um, it, it, it happened by accident. It was a necessity for me. I was on my way to an event. I didn't have time to get my nails done. And um, the my ex-boyfriend with his new girlfriend were going to be there. And I didn't want to go there with ugly nails. <laughs> you know how it goes? <laughs> so, the things that we come up with with in desperation, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was like, I'm going to meet her. I'm like, I don't want to look pretty. <laughs> so I, I quickly went to the store. I, I bought a pack of these you know, press on nails that I'd never used before. And I was totally desperate. And I put them on and they worked, but they didn't have any cool styles. Um, and uh, the, the glue wasn't that good. Um, but the concept I really liked. So I was like, you know, I think a lot of women could actually use this, especially if you're going to events or you don't want to, you know, you know, go to the salon and waste two hours, or you just need something for one night. This could be something, you know, really cool. So I had some contacts overseas. So I reached out to people and then I flew overseas and started just the process and it took some time. And so we started to develop that. And then outside of that, the branding concept. Um, so this kind of is what ties into women empowerment. So as we all know, you know, all of us are, are business women and, and, and the way that we do things, branding is such a big thing. So if you're going to be a brand, what kind of brand do you want to be? What, what's that message? And so I had to dig deep, you know, what is that message? And so just with all the adversities I've overcome as a woman, um, and finding my voice, being able to stand up for myself, um, it's very hard. And so I wanted to kind of um, use that experience to encourage and empower other women to find their voice, to find their self-esteem, to find their self-love and confidence that comes from a very real place. So that's the branding aspect of Sexy Boss Babe. And I wanted it to truly be real, you know, like affirmations are a big thing for me. Affirmations have gotten me uh, through a lot of uh, tough times in my life um, to, to help me to believe in myself. Every single box of Sexy Boss Babe nails has an affirmation method on it. You know, the ones I've got on the little red, uh, uh, pink ones, Boss Up, I wear these. Um, just, just on the top, it'll say boss up. And, uh, it's, it's to remind me in those moments where like life is tough and there's no one left to count on, but myself. So I got to boss up in that moment. So it's that inner strength for yourself. And so when I wear them, it gives me that little mental connection. And when I forget, it's a reminder. And then, you know, the podcast, I have a sexy boss up podcast. It's about a lot of this female-centric issues and just the things, self-esteem, empowerment, confidence, and how to find that. So anything associated with our brand is about uplifting women. So that's that part of it. <laughs> how and has the response 
been in regards to it. I mean, I know what my response was. And I, so let me tell you, I, those of you who have seen some of the photos, they lasted, I had to take them off because they lasted so long. I was shocked because I asked you, like I went to an event, I won a pair of, I won some nails. And then for the podcast launch, I wanted to have something cool. So Arzo came over sweet person she is donated a basket and then also was like well I'll do your nail I'll put your nails on for you since I had never done it before and it was super easy and now that she's shown me like I could totally do it myself and everything and she tells me they're supposed to last between seven and ten days they totally did like I had to soak them in water because I needed to just you know, you can trim them if you need to, which I did after a few days because I couldn't, I'm not used to having long nails. So for me, it was difficult for some people. If that, if you're used to that, you're probably like golden with these things. And how, like in regards to how much you charge, like, I would love for you to tell people how they can get them. I do want to have some other questions after first, but I want to make sure we touch on how you can get them, where you can find them and how much they are, because I think people are going to be really shocked to find out how much they are and how long they last. They can easily last seven to 10 days. And what you would pay for three or four boxes, depending on where, where you get them is what you're paying for one time to go to a salon. So before we get to that, I really want to ask in regards to human trafficking, because of that, I was fortunate enough to go through a training when I worked at DART, which is Dallas Area Rapid Transit, in regards to how to spot um, victims of human trafficking. What are things that you can share with people in regards to how to spot human trafficking? And then what can somebody do if they suspect somebody is a victim? So um, great question. And um, it's, it's not an easy thing necessarily to spot, but there are telltale signs especially when it comes to uh, young women. I think it's easier to spot than it is on, on young men. Um, women are typically the, the majority of victims, although it does happen to young men too. Um, but for example, a young girl, let's say, uh, let's say you're a teacher, you're in school and you have a, um, a young girl, sixth grader, eighth grader or something. If she starts all of a sudden showing up with really expensive clothes, expensive purses, those kinds of things, that's a telltale sign where it, it doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? Like, you know, they don't come from a, um, from a, you know, from a family that could probably provide that. So she's getting it from somebody and she's not an adult where she could get it herself. So someone is giving it to her. So that's the telltale sign. Um, anyone that, um, has any abused, uh, um, physical attributes, you know, black eye bruises, that sort of thing. Uh, typically traffickers abuse these young people. Um, additionally, a change in somebody's demeanor. Uh, maybe somebody was really happy and bubbly, and then all of a sudden you start noticing that they're depressed and they're kind of withdrawn. Um, they're being abused most likely. Um, those are some of the you know symptoms, or you know I don't want to say symptoms, but you know some of the characteristics um, in public in a public setting. For example, um, if you see a significantly older person, an older male uh, with a younger female. Uh, where you see just through body language where uh, he's kind of controlling over her. That's definitely a telltale sign um, where she can't make a decision without his consent. That's usually a telltale sign. They have tattoos. A lot of times traffickers will brand girls. Um, so they'll have a tattoo. Uh, so, so those are just, you know, some of the, the different ways. Um, and if somebody does spot this, you don't want to intervene. You don't want to, especially if you see something in public. I think it's different if you're a teacher, you have a little bit of more of an intimate relationship that you can get involved. But in, in a public setting, um, it can be dangerous. So it, it could put her in danger. It could put you in danger. Uh, so you don't want to go and say, hey, I know you're a trafficker. <laughs> so you don't want to do that. Um, but what you can do is call um, the National Human Trafficking Hotline. And I'm going to share that number uh, too. So let me, let me find it. But those are some of the ways. Would it be advisable while you're looking up that number, would it be advisable to call the police at that point and say, I think this is what's happening or you, or is it just best to call the trafficking hotline? I mean, you can call the police. Definitely. That's, uh, I, I had a situation uh, a few months ago. I was at Parkway Plaza in San Diego and I was leaving the parking lot. And if, if, if people don't know this, but Parkway Plaza in El Cajon is a hub for human trafficking. Um, and it's, you know, a lot of stores are closing down. So it's something that's becoming a little bit more common, which is really scary. Um, 
so I was leaving uh, in the parking lot and I saw a man with this little girl and it just looked a little bit weird. They were walking. He had a backpack on. Um, she seemed a little off. And so I just, I don't know, something in my gut just said like, just check in on this. And so I don't recommend people to do this. I'm a little like, I will go and, you know, get myself involved sometimes. So what I did is I actually, I pretended like I was asking for directions and I said, Hey, me, um, I'm trying to get to the eight freeway. Do you know? And, and I just wanted to, through the conversation, be able to observe a little bit better and see what the kid was, was acting like if she seemed scared or not. And what I started to notice is she was probably about five years old, five or six, and she probably had autism and she couldn't communicate. So then it became hard for me to tell if this is just the dad and she's an autistic kid or autistic kids are also very vulnerable. If you're in a mall setting with an autistic kid, it can sometimes run away from the parent. And if a trafficker is nearby, they can take them. So I, it was just kind of like, okay, do I mind my own business and just say, Hey, this is a dad and just walk away. Or do I, you know, follow my instincts. And what I started to notice is he started getting nervous. He started getting nervous and the directions that he was giving me, because I know San Diego well, he started getting really nervous and giving me these weird directions that didn't make sense. Then that also triggered me to think something weird is here. So I thanked him and I drove away, but then I called police. I actually called 911 or uh, I, I called the, the local police department and I gave the description of what I had seen in the location that they were. And then I just hoped for the best at that point. Oh, wow. I hope that they were able to, to find them and hopefully he didn't really have a, maybe he didn't have a car or something and they were able to pick him up or something. Cause yeah. that's so scary to think about. I know a lot of times human trafficking happens, and now what I know, okay, so actually twofold. I know a lot of times, anytime there's large sporting events, Super Bowl, World Series, anything like that, those attract human trafficking. Um, what about a time that we're going through right now? Something where everybody is quote unquote, like unofficially quarantined. We're all, we're doing this social distance where there's not a lot of people out. Is that something that encourages it or discourages something like human trafficking? So the, the honest answer is, is that there's a lot of unknowns right now because we're in such a uncharted waters, we're experiencing uncharted waters and everything. So it's hard to say, this is what typically happens because there is no typical in this particular specific situation. Um, there are things that people know that could happen. One, a lot of people are not even taking the pandemic seriously with regards to coronavirus. So you see a lot of people just not even paying attention and not caring and thinking this is not a big deal. So they're not even listening to social isolation and social distancing. They're going about their business. And if that's the case, then it's not affecting that uh, traffickers are still going to be running their business. Um, the other part, if they are engaging in some level of social distancing, then there are a lot of uh, articles right now that there is a, a fear for what um, women in, in domestically abusive relationships are experiencing right now. And those articles have more been focused on husband and wives, but it, it's definitely the same thing when it comes to uh, traffickers because it's, it's those dynamics where you have a pimp when you have a bunch of women and they are abusive and the people that they're exposed to are abusive and they're stuck and they can't go anywhere. So it's, it's a dangerous time for them all the time. And especially now. I know I have seen a lot of social posts, and a lot of articles in regards to that. And it's scary. I'm very, you know, like I'm very fortunate, you know, you're very fortunate. We're not in a situation like that. I can't even imagine like being in that type of situation and having, and it's almost like a way for people to be more controlling, right? Like you can't go out and no, 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 you can't go out. You can't go out. And it, it puts, if you are a victim of domestic abuse or a parent child abuse or human trafficking, it almost is like those ways to truly keep those people and isolate them far, you know, further from general public. Absolutely. You're 100% true because it's an added way of just creating that control and that fear. If you go outside, you might get this disease. If you, you know, uh, holding onto resources and, and, and not sharing those resources to be able to control. And that's something that they do all the time anyways. Um, so it's just, you know, once, once somebody falls, becomes a victim to human trafficking, it is very hard to get them out. So the, the efforts, there needs to be a lot of efforts towards prevention. Uh, because once they're in, it's just, it's, it is, it is a scary reality. What happens out there? Have you met many people who've been able to get out of human trafficking and what has their 
what is their experience outside of that once they're back in a safe environment? Mm-hmm. So yes, I have definitely met people that have experienced uh, being trafficked and then um, have gotten out of the life. Uh, some people have gotten to the point of uh, becoming advocates and they do a lot of advocacy work and they work with nonprofits that work with this demographic and they have that firsthand knowledge so um, of what they have, have gone through and experienced. And coming out of it, there is such a time of healing before you can just go back and say, okay, well, I'm not going to go to that life and I'm going to just be a regular member of society. There's a lot of trauma that you've experienced, you know, just in that one story that I told you about, you know, my old boss. Right. And I was laughing, telling that story, but I know it's, it's that's, that's trauma, right? These women are going through 10 times worse and, and, and a lot of it. Do they tend to age out of it where they're like no longer want, I, I hate the, I hate saying that word, but that's the only word that can come to mind where they're no longer wanted. Do they tend to find a way to be able to escape from that? Or do they turn into predators themselves? Or is it kind of a combination of all three? It is a combination of, of all of it. So, um, one, the, the age of, of becoming victims of sex trafficking has, has become lower. It used to be more teens. Now it's as early as eight years old. So um, the the buyers, that's another part too, people talk about how, why not start focusing more on the buyers and, you know, making it more challenging for them. But um, so the average average age is eight to 14 years old. And when they start at that young of an age, there's a lot of trauma because as a, as a, as a woman, your body's not even ready to experience those types of things physically. So through the physical trauma of the actions of intercourse, with multiple people. And that's the other thing is people don't realize a lot of these one, I just want to just touch on why do people even do this? And it's because of money, because it is a business. It is the second um, most lucrative business in, uh, in, in the world after drugs. Uh, and the, and the reason why is with drugs, you're going to sell a drug, right? You're going to sell marijuana or cocaine. You have to get new inventory to be able to sell it to more people with human trafficking or sex trafficking. You don't, you can sell the same person as inventory multiple times. So in one day on average, somebody could be having sex with eight to 12 people just in one day. So if you're a little, I know it's, it's hard, it's hard to, it, it hurts. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you're a young person, eight years old, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and you, that's what your life is, the life expectancy drops. So that's another reality is that if, if a young kid gets into that, their life expectancy typically is no longer than four years. So they could die. Four? Uh, four years, correct. Wow. You go in at an eight, you're probably not going to live past eight years. So if they, um, the life expectancy is, uh, about four years. Um, if, if, especially if a young person gets into trafficking, so if they're eight years old, uh, they're, they might not live past age 12. And that's mostly due to the, the physical trauma of the act of sex at such a young age. Um, also being exposed to so many sexual partners, uh, a lot of times they just end up contracting HIV or AIDS. So they die from that. And then being with abusive uh, partners and they just essentially get beaten to death. Oh my God. That's uh, the reality. My like, my heart is just breaking hearing this because I can't even imagine. Yeah. Imagine going through anything like that. And I think what you're doing is so, so important. I know you wanted to give the number to the sex trafficking hotline or the, whatever the the hotline is. And then if there's a, um, a website that people can refer to in regards to learning more about it, that would be awesome to be able to provide as well. And if you don't have it offhand, just email it to me and I'll make sure to put it in the show notes and I'll put the number of the um, sex trafficking hotline in the show notes as well to make sure people are able to have a resource. Absolutely. And you can just Google human trafficking hotline. Um, a, a number will pop up and there are resources, but I will definitely sh- share some links that, um, that, that I use as go-tos. Um, but the number, it's, it's a toll-free number for the Human Trafficking Resource Center. So if you spot somebody that you think might be a victim, you call this number and the number is 888-373-7888. So I know you're using Sexy Boss Babe as Kind of as a platform, not only for women empowerment, but it gives back, it gives back to the community. So if you could kind of explain how that works and where people could find them and what this, like how much goes into that, I think people 
you know, once they hear it, obviously, if you're listening to this, your heart is probably breaking and you're probably like, what can I do? How can I help? And if not everybody has the ability to get involved in the way that you have gotten involved, but even just by like purchasing nails, you're able to support. So kind of explain how that works. Uh, thank you for asking that question. So yeah, uh, you know, kind of going back to the women empowerment aspect, you know, if we're empowered as women, right, there's so many other marginalized groups that need our help. And so this is our platform. Sexy Boss Wave supports, you know, with every purchase, uh, foster youth and sex trafficking survivors are supported. Um, and and our, our hope and our goal is to create a community of women that, that this is going to be their platform. You know, this is a one of the causes or a main cause that they want to support. And, you know, the questions that you asked me earlier, as far as how many people get saved or get out of the life and everything, and it's, it's very hard once you get into the life. And so our focus, and a lot of experts say this too, is focusing on prevention. Um, so focusing on prevention is, is one aspect. The other, and that's where the foster youth comes into play. So we offer self-esteem workshops, life skills training, things like that. Uh, to, to youth uh, through our charity partners that help this demographic. And so we'll go in and we'll do a self-esteem workshop and, um, or, or give them some, some life skills. And people don't realize that how important a self-esteem workshop is. And as I was talking about earlier, that cupcaking process and everything, these kids and these young people are dying for attention. They're dying for that. And one of your most lines of defense is self-esteem. If you have self-love and if you have self-esteem and you understand what you deserve, that's going to be a way for you to protect yourself and know, wait, you know what? This guy doesn't really like me. You know, he's just using this to be able to manipulate me. It's, it's a hard thing to, for, for kids to know unless they're taught that. So that's one of the things that we do to help we provide those workshops. We always gift a box of nails to the youth. Uh, and then we talk about the self-esteem messages and they love it. Like they absolutely love it. We do an event, uh, once a year, which I'm so sad it was canceled this year because of coronavirus. Uh, but LA County has this event through CASA court appointed special advocates. Uh, every year they do a glamor gowns event. So, um, at the convention center and they bring in all the foster youth from LA County, uh, to give them a brand new dress or a suit for prom. And then they have glam stations, hair, makeup, and things like that. So we do the nails. So we, you know, help hundreds of of young people. They come through and we'll sit with them for 10 or 15 minutes and we we do self-esteem talks. Um, and you build such a connection and I'm going to send you, um, a, a write-up about the event last year. It's so touching. It's something that changed my life. And, and, and another thing sometimes people ask is, well, how do nails help kids and their youth? And, you know, it doesn't make sense. Again, it ties back to the cupcaking that traffickers do. And in the Department of Children and Family Services, in their budget, they have a line item for nail service and nail products. And it literally specifically says, and I'll send this to you too. I'll send you a copy of this. Um, it says to protect youth from exploiters, which is another word. So, you know, that is something that, you know, just in that one little simple thing, we're able to kind of protect them. And again, it's all focused on, on the prevention aspect of it more so than anything else. Uh, and same thing for uh, survivors of sex trafficking. And we work with other charities that have helped rescue women out of the life and help them get an apartment, get a job, get their life back on track. And so those are other groups that we work with and we do, uh, you know, nail services and we do the workshops and things like that. So how, if people want to purchase sexy boss babe nails, where can they go? So you can always go on our website, www.sexybossbabe.com. Um, a box is $20. Guys, join our Facebook group, Sex Boss Babe. Uh, we give everybody 30% off. So we have a code for all of our members and then we do free shipping. We also sell in about 60 stores throughout California at this point. In San Diego, we're at Empire Beauty in La Jolla, Pacific Beach, Mission Valley, Hillcrest, La Mesa. Um, in National City, we're in Berlin's Beauty. Uh, Point Loma, we're at Flirt Beauty Supply. Del Mar, we're in Planet Beauty. And there's one other one that we just got into. It's in Chula Vista, and I, I, I should know that. Oh, I know. Glam, Glam Powder Room, which is in Chula Vista. And there's one other spot in Chula Vista that we got into. I can't remember their name off the top of my head. Are you able to find all of those stores on the website as well? Yes. Awesome. yes. Go to the yeah. website and you go to retail locations. It'll list all those. And um, at our stores, they sell about $11 a box. 
So you get 24 nails, you get a glue and a nail file. So And they last. I'm like total witness because I had to reach out to you and say, how do I take these off? <laughs> because they really do last. And I have like two, I have a total of three boxes. I have one that when I've used, I have two other nails that I will be using because especially now, why not feel good about yourself right now? Because we're all, you know, not doing anything while we're in this quarantine type state. Um, but where do you hope to see sexy boss babe go from here? Where do you want, where do you want to see it in five, 10 years from now? Yeah. So the long-term, like my ultimate, ultimate dream is to be able to, so and the reason why I want this is, you know, we are a for-profit company with a charity component. Okay. So it's very similar to Tom's shoes. So Tom's shoes, you buy one, they donate one. So it's kind of similar in that regard. So when people buy, we're able to be able to do donate, um, at glamour gowns, we're able to do the workshops and, you know, donate nails and donate our time and everything. Uh, so the product sales directly impact this demographic directly. And our long-term goal is to one day be able to, uh, create like the charter school of group homes, be able to fund it. Traditional nonprofits, they get most of their money from grants, government grants, and through fundraising. It is a very um, uh, outdated model, and a lot of nonprofits are uh, are challenged because they don't have a way to have a revenue stream. So these social impact models like Palm Shoes and like what we've created, this is a solution to that type of a, a, a uh, construct because it has both, you know, we've got a product that we're selling. So we're doing something that's generating money, right. And we're working with our charity partners or marginalized communities to be able to provide some type of community support that creates a much needed impact. Um, and you're always coming out with different styles and stuff. How many styles do you have right now? So we have 10 right now. We have 10 styles, uh, different styles, they're different lengths, different colors, different finishes different messages. And then, you know, we are planning, you know, we've been doing like our, 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 our new designs. So I don't know with coronavirus, it kind of puts a wrench into things um, as far as new designs coming up and hitting our, our target timeline, but we're still moving forward. But the cool thing is they're reusable too. So you don't have to continue, you know, like as you come out with new styles and obviously right now with your, it's, in a little bit of holding pattern, but there's still plenty to choose from. And you're able to, if there's one or two that you really, really like, you can continue to use those over and over. And then, uh, instead of feeling like, Oh my gosh, I have to buy one every 10 days. Exactly. You can definitely take them on, keep them. I mean, take them off, keep them and then reuse them. Um, and then at at the cost at a, at a retail store. And this is a a great way to be able to support the local retail stores too. And, 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 you know, buying a box of, you know, nails from, from those stores if they're close to your home, or even just, like I said, just going online and, and, and purchasing. We also have a point program too. So whenever you buy or create a free account on our website, you get a bunch of free points. And then, um, you know, after you accumulate certain points, you get more free product. We also have the Sexy Boss Babe podcast available on all the platforms too. So everything is about women empowerment and, you know, just things to make you guys feel good <laughs> and everything back, you know? So just by, you know, being a beautiful woman and, you know, investing in yourself without even doing anything more than that, you're already giving to um, a very big uh, problem in our world that needs a lot of attention and, and support. So you guys, when you support Sexy Boss Babe, that is what you're supporting. So just know that. Which I love. I, I just, it makes me so happy to be able to share this with other people, have you on and have you share this because it's so important and you know, people want to feel good, but it makes, it's like, it's like you get to feel good double because you have nice nails and you're doing something. So Arzo, if people want to reach out to you on social media, how can they do that? What are your social media handles? Sure. So, um, my personal is the Arzo Yusuf and that's spelled A-R-Z-O-Y-U-S-U-F. Uh, sexy boss babe is at the sexy boss babe. Our website is www.sexybossbabe.com. And our Facebook group is Sexy Boss. Babe. Join us. Stay with us. <laughs> All right. So now we're going to go to the questions I ask everybody. And thank you so much for sharing that. Like, yeah, I could, I would, I would, now I wish I would have videoed this because you could see my reactions. I'm like, oh, I know. Oh. I I was like oh my God. Like, I, I felt what your heart was going through in that moment. And I was like, oh my God, like I, I could see it. Like you get it, you know? And oh my gosh. Like, oh my God, it's like working, you know? It's like the more I get to talk about this and connect, 
that's when people really get to understand. And I think that's because you, it's very obvious that you're very passionate about it and you've learned about it and you want to share it. You want to make sure people are educated about it. I think that makes such a difference versus just like, oh, this is happening. Yay, whatever. Like, oh, this is a problem. No, you're, you can sense your passion as well. And uh, yeah, just, it was just breaking my heart listening to some of these stories. So, okay. Oof, I know, I know. You know, we have to do a little meditation. I know. <laughs> what do you wish you would have known uh, when you started out? Um, you need more money. <laughs> <laughs> Always, right? Yeah, and I, never I have saved, enough. Never have enough. And I had saved a lot of money to do this, you know, or in my mind, what that means. You need way more than whatever you can even possibly imagine that you need. Um, so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what is something that you're curious about right now? In, in life or in business? Or Both, either or, whichever you feel like answering. I'm probably curious about my love life more than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> Am I going to meet the one? <laughs> and what is something, you know, failure is something that always teaches us something and we learn. What is something that you failed at? Oh my gosh. Many, 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 many things. Um, I've, I failed in a lot of things. I, um, I had, a uh, another business that I tried to start probably a little over 10 years ago and that failed and you know, it's, it's hard, it's challenging, you know, and having the courage to try again. <laughs> I think that's so admirable because I think sometimes when you fail, but you know, who has that entrepreneurial spirit, right? By like, okay, this didn't work. What else can I do? What, how can I pivot that? How can I do this? How can I do that? I've never felt like I had like that full entrepreneurial spirit until I started doing the podcast. I'm not going to lie. Like, I think I just never, I always like would want to do things, but I never knew how. And I never felt like I was so driven to do anything. And then once I found myself in this space, it was the first time I felt like this is what I'm supposed to be doing and I'll work my ass off to do it. Yes. <laughs> I, I know how hard you work. I, I see it and I know how hard you work. And, and, um, I think that taking that first step, like you said, like you always had this inside of you, but like you weren't sure. And then you started your podcast and you started to feel that that's all it is. It's, it's just believing in yourself and taking that first step. And you pivot, like you said, and you learn as you go and you change directions sometimes. And sometimes guess what? It might not work and that's okay. And it doesn't, it's not the end of the world. Those are your lessons. Those are how you build your skills and you learn every single time. So even if you fail, don't even worry about it because take the lessons and try something else later when you're ready. Yeah. Cause I mean, if, what are you learning if you're always succeeding, right? Except all you learn is, oh, I'm the greatest. Exactly. And then until exactly. somebody kicks you in the teeth and then you're like, what happened? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. What? Now, he, now these are the easy ones, the easy softball ones. What is your favorite word? My favorite word? My favorite word is probably um, because I say it a lot. But no. <laughs> um, well, my word of the year is compassion. In January, we did a post that our word of the year is compassion. So. Wow, that is like so, especially right now. God, that is just so on for 2020. What? I, that's what, I, what the post said. It said, um, uh, let 2020 be the year of compassion. Oh my gosh. What is a dream that scares you? A dream that scares me is having kids as much as I love them. I, 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 it's something that I want so much, but it scares me too, because I think, you know, what if I do have one and I, I don't have, you know, what I need to give them as a parent. So that scares me. Oh, but that shows that you're going to like, that shows the love that you want to be able to give to your child. Cause if you didn't care, you wouldn't think that. Yeah. Okay. So you're from, well, basically we're, you're from San Diego cause you were so young when you moved out of Afghanistan. What is your go-to order? Like I'm here, I'm in San Diego. Where do I need to go that, I mean, I've been gone for 20 years and I've only been back not even a year where, what am I missing out at? What am I missing out on that? I need to go ASAP. In San Diego? Yeah. Like a place to go for like fun or something? For like eating. Oh, for eating. Yeah. Where do I need to go and what do I need to order? Okay. You need to go to Costera. I don't know if you've been to Costera. No. Okay. It is the most beautiful restaurant ever. Wait, is it's, that a Mediterranean restaurant in um, Gaslamp? 
No, it's okay, on Harbor Island. Oh, okay. No, I've not been at all. Yes. Okay. I I went there on a date last last fall, and I've been gone from San Diego for a long time too, so I didn't know. And so um, I I had heard about it, but I didn't know really what it was. So that's where my date took me, and it was on Harbor Island, and we got a really nice spot in the restaurant. Um, the table was like right by the window over the harbor, so we went around like I think it was like five six o'clock. So it was you could still see everything during the day, but we stayed until the sunset, so you could see just the the skyline in downtown. It is the most beautiful place like ever, like ever, 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 ever. You Ooh. have to go. Okay. Well, I'm glad because that's the place that I can actually go because I ask everybody. And right now some people are East Coast and I'm like, well, I'm going to have to wait till I get over there. So you have to go there and you can just even go sit at the bar and take your laptop. So if you want one of those days where you want to get out of your house, you're going to text me when you do it and tell me, Arzo, and send me a picture. Okay. okay. Done and done. Once we can, once I, once we can actually do that. <laughs> and final question: Wine, red, white, or rosé? And do you have a favorite one? Red, definitely. Um, it's just it's easier for me to like. I just like the taste better. I like bitter tastes, which is weird. Like with beer, I like um, uh, IPAs because it's so bitter. And I think uh, red wine it has a little bit more of that kick to it than white wine does. Mm -hmm. So I like it better. And I definitely like Cabernet. That's my favorite. Gotcha. Well, Miss Arzo, thank you so much for coming on, for talking about this. I am so happy that we have met and that we've become friends because you are such a beautiful soul. It's, I love just talking to you. Anytime I get to talk to you, whether it's through Instagram or I get to see you, I love it because you just, you're just smiling and you just radiate all this wonderfulness. Oh, you're so sweet. I love you. Thank you so much. You're so sweet. And you know what? I was, we have a saying where we come from that I'm going to say it in Farsi and then I'm going to translate it. Okay. In Farsi, it's and the translation, it's the person who sees beauty in others is the one that's truly the beautiful one. So thank you for being beautiful. Oh my gosh. You're going to make me cry. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. And mi gente, thank you guys so much for listening. And until next time, saludos. Bye. reach out to me via my social media channels instagram at the wine and chisme facebook at the wine and chisme podcast and linkedin at the wine and chisme podcast as well because you know i want to hear those stories remember if you want to hear more wine and chisme please subscribe rating and reviews are always appreciated five stars are appreciated and good reviews are appreciated even more so until next time mi gente saludos